Welcome in, come one, come all, Joe Gill on hand. This is the JG3 Experience Podcast. Thank you for listening and making this podcast part of your day. We are presented by Upstate Social, the destination for residents, by residents. The young professionals behind Upstate Social, Kelly Richards and Jenny Hebert, are saving the social lives of the young and old alike in the greater capital region, as they are your destination for everything you need to enhance your social life in the greater capital region. Follow Upstate Social on social media at Upstate underscore social underscore. Upgrade your social calendar by checking out Upstate Social now. Double digits today, episode number 10. Still going strong. We're recording this on a Tuesday, December 10th, 2019. President's Cup preview today, going to be looking into the squads of the international and the U.S. teams, the course layout of Royal Melbourne, and how and when you can watch all the action. I'm pumped about the first full golf episode, plus call of the day, Henrik Stenson stuffs one in close for a tapping eagle, and we're going to be looking for a bounce back week and weekend winners today. It all begins with an opening statement about the college football playoff. Buckle up, turn up the volume, and get ready for the experience. EP number 10, the President's Cup preview, is teeing off right now. Today's opening statement will be in defense of the college football playoff. I'm on a tear to defend the weak and weary. There's a ton of momentum that the playoff should expand to six or eight teams, and this year is a perfect example of why we have everything we need. The court is now in session and counsel is ready to deliver his opening statement. This year's college football playoff selection of LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Oklahoma was the easiest selection the committee has had in this playoff short history. You had three unbeaten conference champions plus the only one-loss Power 5 conference winner. This was so easy, in fact, the only argument and stories that came out of this selection was the seeding. Should LSU be number one? This is the best Ohio State team ever. How are they number two? But before I get off topic, here is why my defense of the committee is what it is and why we must stay at four to protect the integrity of this playoff. Momentum continues to grow that this playoff system has to expand to eight teams. There are many people in favor of it. My question to you to consider is simply why. Eight teams is utterly absurd and will only water down the current system. It would essentially be a free-for-all that nobody needs to see. When wondering who is good and who isn't, I always turn to Vegas. Now, obviously, Vegas can be wrong from time to time, but there's a reason most people lose money, and even the best of sharps are winning at a 60-63% to clip. Let's take this year, for instance. Wisconsin finished at number 8 in the rankings. They lost to Ohio State twice this year and have three losses overall. If the committee thinks LSU is better than Ohio State, which I do as well, do we really need to see Wisconsin play LSU? I don't think so. Or, would you rather like to see Baylor at number 7, who lost to Oklahoma twice, an Oklahoma team that opened as a 14-point underdog to LSU, get pummeled by number 2 Ohio State. Baylor opened as a 3-point underdog against Georgia in the Sugar Bowl, and Georgia just got pummeled by LSU. Ohio State would be a 3-touchdown favorite against Baylor, if not more. That is not a game I need to see. The only matchup that gets even a remote amount of momentum in this 8-team scenario would be the 4 versus 5. Not even the 3 versus 6 would be interesting. Oregon opened as a 3-point underdog at the Rose Bowl against Wisconsin. Clemson is favored against Ohio State. How big of a favorite would Clemson be against Oregon? Two, three touchdown minimum. These are not contests we need to see, plain and simple. Adding to this tournament just makes it drag on, too. This playoff is already way too long with four weeks off between conference title games and the semifinal games, then another two weeks until the national title game. These teams are playing 15 games a year if they get to the finals, which is more than enough games for the college level. Not to mention the fact with every added game, the harder it becomes to run the table. 
Football is not basketball where the best team wins mostly every game, especially at the college level. Adding another game just makes that pursuit that much tougher no matter how good you are. This year is the perfect year and why four teams is just so wonderful because there is a clear consensus for the first time that these are the best four and there really is no debate. And if you like seeing lopsided games like you do all year for many of these top teams, then sure, go to eight teams. This is a playoff system, not the bowl system where you go 500 and you get to play in the Red Lobster GoDaddy.com Sun Bowl that nobody gives a shit about or watches. It should be an exclusive party for the very best teams, not an opportunity for these subpar teams to get a shot at an unbeaten when they lost two or three games. You want to be in the playoff? Win your conference and don't get beat by Arizona State or Illinois or South Carolina along the way. This momentum for the college football playoff to expand is complete and utter horseshit. It is perfect at four teams. It keeps the integrity of the importance of the regular season intact. It continues to put an emphasis on conference championships and wins overall. I urge you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, keep this playoff at four teams. You will not regret it. For today's main event, we're talking golf, golf, and more golf. I know what you're probably thinking. Golf in December in the Northeast is tough, but hey, the President's Cup is the ugly cousin of the Ryder Cup, and it's a fun, spectacular event, especially when Tiger Woods is not only the captain of Team USA, but playing as well. So let's get down right to it. The President's Cup, for those of you that don't know, is the Ryder Cup, except Team USA plays against the international team, and there's a couple more points involved, which is, yeah, and the international team is basically everyone in the world, not in Europe. So you get the best of the best on the international team like Adam Scott, Hideki Matsuyama, Louis Tazen, Mark Leishman, and they're all captained by the legendary Ernie Els. Unfortunately, one of the better players on this team would have been Jason Day. He's injured, he cannot compete, but Brooks Kepka is out for Team USA, so it balances itself out a bit. The teams flip-flop every other President's Cup on who is home in a way, so this year it is being played at Royal Melbourne in Australia, one of the best international golf venues there is. It's a 36-hole club that hosted in 1998. It hosted in 2011. So let's get into the talk about the course layout of Royal Melbourne. We're going to talk a little bit about the teams afterwards. We're going to go into all of it. So we'll start with the layout. The West course is ranked one of the top five courses in the world. It has the best putting surfaces in all of Australia and features an array of designs with bunkers galore that are fairly and well placed throughout the design. It measures at 7,055 yards and is a par 71 for this installment of the President's Cup. So Let's do a quick rundown of the course and we'll talk through it as we go. First hole is a 373 yard par 4. The ideal tee shot flies long down the right side of the fairway so that the approach can be played at a right angle to the swale at the front of the green. The green demands a well struck pitch shot with a poor pitch invariably sending the ball to the back of the green. Now the second is a par 5 533 yards. The tee shot is blind and takes golfers over the sand hill in its famous carry bunkers. Unless one is able to thread the ball between the drive bunkers on the left and tee tree on the right, the carry is a heroic one for all but the biggest hitters, as we know, plenty of big hitters here. If the green is reachable, the gamble is worth taking, which I'm sure you will see, especially when you get into the alternate shot and the singles, for sure. But the bunkers lying short to the right of the green threaten the miss hit, and you have to avoid those bunkers. So the third hole then becomes a par 3, it's 176 yards, it plays down from the tee, it's across a valley and up to a green that sits on an opposite hill. The key aim is to get the ball up onto the putting surface, anything short is swept back down the bank fronting the green. Anything too long leaves a treacherous downhill putt, which you definitely do not want. The fourth hole normally plays as a short par 5, but it's going to play as a par 4. It plays longer than you'd think. It doglegs up to the highest sand hill on the course. Bunkers are short right of the green and then greenside left and right providing 
Additional challenges to a somewhat blind second shot. One has to hit a very well-judged shot to make birdie on this hole. So there's a lot of different options that you have off the tee. It's a difficult second shot if you're not long off the tee. The green slopes sharply from the front to back, and the rule is a simple one. You never hit the ball above the flag when it's cut in the right half of the green. Onto the fifth. The fifth is another par three. It's going to play at 148. And the right half of the putting surface is guarded by a deep bunker, which forces players into making tough decisions, which is either you play left for safety and put across the long slope, which risks three putting, or you aim over the bunker to the small pocket of green where the flattest putts are. Errant shots, if you go for the flag when it's protected over there, will certainly be punished. The sixth is going to be a short par four, measures up to 312 yards. From the tee, the landing is sharply down the hill. It rises up around the bunker and towards a small green at the highest point of the hill. This will be an interesting hole to watch because I think that there might be certain guys that try to go for it depending on the day again. The formats that we're seeing when you have four ball and when you have alternate shot, there's a lot of strategy that goes into these things because if you have four ball, you can have maybe one guy go for it, one guy play one safe in the fairway. Alternate shot, it depends on obviously who's going to be driving on that hole. If you get a longer hitter that might want to go for it versus somebody that you'd be playing with that might be a good scrambler or might not be, so you might want not want to risk you know, putting it in the bunker or something like that or in a tough spot to have to hit an approach shot to the green. These are the things that make events like the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup great is because there's so much more strategy into it, especially when you have to consider another player that goes into it. So that'll be an interesting hole to watch. The seventh is a 455-yard par four. The ideal place to drive it is in the left corner of the driving area, which is protected by bunkers. If you play it safe on the right side, you're going to need a really good second to find the putting surface and keep it on there. The green tips noticeably to the left from its high point on the right. Players must carry the bunker short to the right of the green to avoid an awkward lengthy bunker shot. It's an interesting, really difficult hole and should be one of the tougher holes on the front nine. The eighth is a 476-yard par four. There are a lot of bunkers embedded in the rise on the hill. It's a tough shot to go kind of over those. I think a lot of the longer hitters will be able to do it, though. Not too much hazard past that point, though. You have basically a couple of short side bunker bunkers in front of the green when you approach it. There is a tough place that can knock balls from the left corner of the green to the left and away from the surface instead of towards it. So when the flag is in the back left, that'll be an interesting spot for it. And the ninth is a par 4, 439. Basically, the fairway stretches out wide on the right, but for every yard the ball is pushed to the right off the tee, the approach becomes that much more difficult. You play your second shot across a valley of sorts. Players can run their ball up onto the green in this a scenario there is a, a larger landing area in front that enables people to do that so for the front nine it comes out at 3351 yards and a par 35 there's two par threes and a couple of short par fours and i think this will definitely be the easier side of the two even though there's only the one par five it's definitely a lot shorter and the par threes again are not playing a real intimidating yardage so you're going to see a lot of shorter irons and wedges into those greens so onto the back nine we go. The tenth is a 433-yard par four. The stronger players fire it far over the sand on those sides. They hug it on the line of rough down the right, which inevitably is closer to the green than driving safely down the left side. The fairway tips hard from right to left, and basically it means that the second shot lie will be above your feet. 
Bunkers cut across the entire length of the approach, but they're not hard up against the green, and the green itself slopes hard from left to right, which makes it a doubly important to leave the approach shot under the hole. So that'll be a really interesting way to see how guys kind of deal with the lie above their feet. Again, some of these things are not necessarily as noticeable on TV when you watch, so it's always good to kind of study the course and see what they're going through because, again, you may watch this on TV and a guy may pull it left or whatever, and you just wonder why it keeps happening and happening on different courses when they play certain events, especially the Masters. Like, that's one of the places where there's a lot of elevation changes and subtle things that you may not necessarily notice when you watch it. So it's always good to kind of know these things going into it. So the 10th will be interesting to see what kind of lies the guys end up getting on the on the second shots. And maybe more guys will tend to go left off the tee to try to avoid that. The 11th is a par 4, 332 yards. Again, this is a shorter one. There's an option to drive directly over the sand, but the pin position on the small fearsome green will dictate that strategy. There's a deep bunker that protects the right front-hand corner of the green, and it must be avoided because you really cannot save par from that spot. It's basically almost impossible. The green tilts steeply down to the bottom left-hand corner from there, so you don't want to end up in that bunker. The 12th is a 440-yard par 4. The second shot plays steeply up to a long and narrow two-tiered green. There are no fairway bunkers on this hole. There are seven bunkers that flank the green on both sides. So you have to be really careful when hitting the approach. Anything left or right will be in the bunker. And this has been a hole, it seems like, when guys are practicing. that It's been a difficult distance to judge and how far they have to carry it. A lot of guys have ended up short. So we'll keep an eye on the 12th for that. 13 is 383-yard par 4. Almost every second shot is played from the downslope which again is something to keep an eye on, like I talked about a little bit earlier, from balls being above and below. The green is one of the most undulating and challenging on the course on 13. It's basically a hollow that feeds down the right, the middle right of the putting surface. It separates the front from the back right corner. This might have been, I'm not entirely certain. There are a couple of videos you see Justin Thomas hitting out of the sand here, and he's hitting it basically up above the green to kind of a swell that pushes it back all the way down towards the hole. This might be that hole. I'll have to double check that. 14 is a par 389 yards. It's a uniquely shaped green. The front bunker eats perfectly in, separates the front left wing from the front right corner. When the pin is in the front left, the wayward player who finishes right of the bunker but still on the green may find that the only way to reach the pin is to pitch across the corner of the sand. It's a very interesting approach shot if you do miss the green here. There are bunkers on the left and in the back of the green as well, so it creates a very difficult landing spot off the tee for this par 3, which will be interesting. The par 3s are always kind of the big-time money shots and the money holes, I think. The par 5s make it interesting because it's a matter of what can you go for it in 2 and who's got the range and who doesn't, but the par 3s, I think, really become that much more magnified in this match play format. So now we go to a par 5 here off the par 3. This is the only par 5 on the back i believe it's 569 yards it's a diagonal line of bunkers across the line of the long second shot uh, about 100 yards from the green so you always have to if you're going to lay up if you're not going to go for it in two you have to make sure you get past those bunkers on the second shot there's a really tough decision that the players face on this hole you can either play it short or attempt to fly the sand and reach the green or at least kind of the apron in front of it the green is large on this hole, and it does have a subtle valley, which starts in the center and moves to the left. But again, this is going to be one of those decisions, especially since it's 15. It's going to be later in matches. You may see guys that might be down two or up two or whatever, and I think that will dictate how they decide to ultimately play this hole. Since there's going to be a lot of option, whether going for it or not, 
and there's going to be some real punishment if you do you know decide to lay up and screw it up or you go for it and miss to a certain spot so it'll be interesting to see what strategy is employed on 15. 16 is 474 yard par 4 the fairway stretches far to the right and has no bunkers the inside of the dog leg, however, is protected by a clump of tea trees that guarantees any player who fly their ball too far left is faced with a pitch out at best. You cannot miss left off the tee here. It's very easy for the fearful driver to turn what is usually a reasonably easy hole into one that is much more difficult. So you may see a lot of three wood, a lot of five wood off this tee to avoid that and just for guys to keep it in play. Apart from a perfectly positioned drive, every approach shot to the large two-tiered green will have to carry one of the greenside bunkers. Again, this is another hole that's kind of littered with bunkers around the green. 17th is a 436-yard par 4. This green follows the lead of the fairway. It's unguarded by sand apart from the small bunker that's on the right side. A swale is on the front left of the green, and it increases the challenge of the second shot. You have to, especially when the hole is going to be cut over there. I imagine that might be a Sunday one or maybe a Saturday one. We'll see. And the closing hole is a 448-yard par 4. It faces a, a long second shot. It's influenced by the distinct slope of the green from right to left. There are players who get too aggressive and run through the green, and they face a very fast and difficult return shot coming back down the slope. So we'll see how many guys actually get to 18, because again, in this format, you don't necessarily have to play 18 holes, so it'll be interesting. So overall, the back comes in at 3,704 yards, and it's a par 36. It's definitely the tougher and the longer side of the two. It only has one par three. It'll be interesting to see some of those finishing holes, as long as they are still in play in some of these matches, how ultimately they go and how guys ultimately deal with it. So that's Royal Melbourne, 7,055 yards, par 71. So let's look at the rosters now. On paper, this should be a U.S. bludgeoning. For Team USA, you got Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Matt Kuchar, Xander Shifley, Webb Simpson, Patrick Cantley, Bryson DeChambeau, Tiger, Gary Woodland, Tony Finau, Patrick Reed, and Ricky Fowler. Most of those guys, if not all of them, are ranked in the top 50 in the world. And when you turn over to the international team, you get Hideki Matsuyama, Adam Scott, Louis Oosthuizen, Mark Leishman, Abraham Anser, Tong Lee, C.Y. Pan, Cameron Smith, Joaquin Neiman, Adam Hadwin, Sunjay Im, and Byung Hoon An. So, again, the U.S. has a clear advantage when it comes to the world rankings. U.S. won 19-15 at Royal Melbourne in 2011, but again in 1998 they lost on this course 20.5 to 11.5. When it comes to this event, I'm not really a believer that history dictates future results as this crop of players on both sides mostly did not play back in 2011 when this event was at Royal Melbourne. Let's look to Vegas. Team USA is a minus 375 to win this thing going into it, which means it would have to be a real big upset for the international team to win. But I do think that their top guys match up fairly well with Team USA's. You know, Leishman and Scott are playing on home soil. Louis Tazen played in the Australian Open last week, came in second, nearly won it. He's no slouch. I've always liked Tazen a lot. I think you're going to end up getting more from the international side's bottom three than Team USA's, but I think where Team USA really has the advantage is in the middle of the pack. And when I say that, what I basically mean is when you get past the top four from each team, because I think the international team's top four is definitely slated to be as strong as Team USA's. So if you take Matsuyama, Scott, Ustazen, and Leishman, and let's say, just for argument's sake, you take Justin Thomas... Patrick Reed, DJ, and whoever you want to put in with those top four, whether you want Tiger in there, you know, whoever you want in that top spot. When you get past that top four, you basically have a combination of Webb Simpson, Xander Shuffley, Bryson DeChambeau, Gary Woodland, Tony Finau as your middle-of-the-pack guys. And the international team has seven rookies out of their remaining eight players after their top four. So experience is obviously on the side of the Americans, and I think you 
when you're getting to that middle of the pack, you're going to see a lot more uh, from the U.S. and having an advantage. And this format's different because five matches go out on Thursday and Friday instead of four, so you can't protect players as much as you can in the Ryder Cup like you can here because 10 guys have to play in a session instead of eight. So you're going to see, like even in the first day, you're going to see Els is sending out five rookies. So it's interesting how we're going to see all of that play out. The Americans have the advantages, no doubt about it, but I do think that there is going to be a competitive element to this. Again, I think, yes, they have dominated this event, but this is not a course necessarily that a lot of these guys have played. We're going to talk about the fatigue fact in a little bit. Well, let's look at some of the key questions that I want to keep an eye on as we go into this. So the first one I have is how much Tiger actually plays. So now he's going off first with Justin Thomas in the first session on Thursday, or the only session on Thursday. So he's going to play in the very first match. And then I think he's going to obviously try to get back and, and do a little bit of captaining once his match is finished. Now, technically, the way it works, you have to hand the captaincy off. So Steve Stricker is going to be the quote-unquote captain while Tiger plays. But again, the format and time frame is different for the President's Cup. As I said, it takes place over four days instead of three. And you only have morning and afternoon sessions on the third day. So I think that, again, and as we're seeing, Tiger is going to play on Thursday. I don't think he'll play Friday unless, again, they are some sort of big deficit that they're facing after Thursday. I think he plays in one of the sessions on Saturday if he's needed, probably in the afternoon, and then he has to play in the singles on Sunday. So I think that you're going to see him at most in three sessions. You're going to see him Thursday. Well, again, technically it's going to be Wednesday here in the States. Then you'll see him on Saturday in one of the, either in the morning or the afternoon, and then you'll see him on Sunday because everybody has to play Sunday. So the second question I have going into it for the Team USA is how does their chemistry work itself out? There was a lot of talk surrounding the issues that Team USA had at the Ryder Cup last year, and they do have a lot of the same players. We heard from various reports that came out in the aftermath when they got thumped by Europe that there were a lot of issues, but I do think that this is a different animal in and of itself. I think you're playing for Tiger Woods. I think this team will have a relaxed vibe around them all week. I think they are definitely the favorite. There's not nearly as much pressure in this event as there is in the Ryder Cup. I think that there's definitely an element that guys take the Ryder Cup much more seriously than they do the President's Cup, and I also think, obviously, the competition isn't nearly as difficult. The course layout suits the Americans well. Again, you're not going to see this mowed back rough and all these crazy setups that you saw in Paris where they took away a lot of the American advantages of being able to drive the ball long and everything else. This course is set up, I don't want to say fairly, because, again, Europe has the absolute right to set it up however they want, just like the U.S. is going to set it up how they want to do it next year in the Ryder Cup. But it suits well for this team. Again, if they drive the wall well, I don't see how they can lose. But again, you have the stuff going on with Patrick Reed. I think they've been having some fun this week. It is a different kind of vibe than you're getting from the Ryder Cup. I think it's being in Australia takes away from the pressure, too. You're not going to see nearly as much of a, a media blitz like you do in Europe. So I, I think that there's a much more relaxed feel, but I do think it's something to keep an eye on when it comes to their chemistry. The third question I have is how much does fatigue factor in? Now, as we know, Australia is nowhere near the Hero World challenges, and it's always tough getting accustomed to a golf course. A lot of these guys have not played before, maybe only once or twice. You know, Tigers played there a number of times. They've had Australian Masters there. They've had Australian Opens there. Again, it's one of the most well-known international venues in all of golf, so it's not like it's entirely this unknown place but you know they moved the hero world challenge conclusion up a day i'm still worried about how it is for the u.s side again i don't know if anybody maybe one or two guys at most on the international side played in it 
DJ and Ricky haven't played much at all this fall. It's a pretty uninspiring performance in the Hero World Challenge for a lot of these guys on this team. Patrick Cantley was even par, which is 18 shots back of Stenson winning. DeChambeau was only minus 3. Kucher was minus 4. Finau, Simpson, and Shifley were minus 7. So how will the fatigue go in playing the week before and having to travel across the globe? How much will that factor in? How much fatigue will be there? Again, this is a team event. So it'll be easier to kind of stagnate. It's not like the Ryder Cup where you have to have double sessions two days and then play as singles. But you still have to have 10 out of your 12 guys play the first day and the second day. So we'll see how Tiger ultimately decides to balance all of those factors. The fourth question that I have in the final one will be is uh, what do the pairings look like? So we see a little bit now kind of what they're going to look like. Tiger's going to play with Justin Thomas. Some of the pairings are interesting. I think the international team has a little bit more of an easier go mixing and matching. I'm surprised that they ultimately didn't pair countrymen together. But all these guys have been playing in these events in recent years for the most part. I think you're going to see kind of combinations. Some things will work, some things will not. I think, again, Tiger and Justin Thomas playing together makes perfect sense. Simpson and Reed playing together, I think, makes a lot of sense. I think Team USA really is going to end up relying on its singles prowess to pull through and overcome any pairing questions. And I think that's... There's certainly a focus to see who Tiger is going to go with in the second session. And again, managing Saturday, I think, is going to be the really big thing. When you have the two sessions, even though it's only four matches instead of five, you know, who are you going to sit out? Who are you going to pair with? Are you going to keep the momentum going if things go well in the first two days? You know, how do you kind of put all of that together? And again, how much does he end up playing himself? I think there's a lot of different things that you need to consider when the pairings go forward. So that's always the biggest question when it comes into these events is how do you pair guys? How does it work? Do you use the pod system? What's going on? So that's a big thing that you have to keep an eye on as well. Overall though, and I'll tell you this much, I I do think that there is too much firepower from this U.S. team. I I think you're going to have too many questions from some of these international guys on the back end that haven't played before. And again, there are a lot of really good players on that team. I just think the U.S. ultimately has too much firepower. If I was a betting man, I definitely would take the U.S., my prediction for this is I think they will retain the cup, and I'm going to go with 16.5 to 13.5. Again, I think it is competitive, and it does come down to the singles. I just think that the U.S. has too many good players, and I think on this in the singles part of it that they will ultimately dominate, and if they need to overcome a deficit, they will do so in the singles. So I'll go 16.5 to 13.5. Programming note, just so you're all aware for this, though, I'm not sure. Again, it's, it's since it's across the world, it's a little bit challenging. It's kind of like the Australian Open in tennis. So it's on on Wednesday from 5.30 to midnight Eastern. Thursday has 7 p.m. to midnight Eastern. Friday is from 3 p.m. to 2 a.m. that wraps up on Saturday morning, since Friday is the only day that features a double session. And Saturday is from 6 p.m. to midnight, and that's the conclusion of the singles, and that it is all on Golf Channel. I hope that all of you are as excited as I am when it comes to the President's Cup again. It might not make for necessarily you know, invigorating radio talking about the course layout, do yourselves a favor, go check out the layouts if you're going to be watching this. It's a really interesting course. Again, we've seen guys play on it before. It's, it's one of the best well-known courses. It's a beautiful place. It's definitely on my bucket list of places that I want to try to get to and play in my lifetime. Check out the layouts, familiarize yourselves, and enjoy the coverage because I will certainly be watching almost every minute of it, and we will do a wrap-up of sorts next week. So that's going to do it for the main event for the President's Cup preview episode. I'm going to take a quick break before getting into Call of the Day and Weekend Winners today. That's coming up next, but first we're going to do a word about our sponsor, Upstate Social. 
This is the Upstate Social Read. If you're new to this podcast, or even if you're not, we are presented by Upstate Social. You're probably wondering just what in the hell Upstate Social is. Well, let me tell you what exactly you're missing out on. Upstate Social is the newest and best thing to hit the lifestyle and happening scene in the greater capital region. That is Upstate New York for all of you that may not know that. Upstate Social is more than just a suggestions page or a fancy profile highlighting the capital region's best attributes. They offer the very best in enhancing your social life, from day trippers, cool day trip ideas for excursions throughout the region, to food and drink options, highlighting the best and newest places to satisfy your palate, to regional events, there's a ton happening around the region for Christmas and New Year's Eve, their comprehensive holiday guides give you all the information you need for an awesome holiday and more. I am now a member of this demographic and region and it has been a huge boost in getting to know the areas and what is going on, especially as an outsider. They are constantly keeping you up to date on everything you need to know that is going on in the greater capital region. Check out the awesome brand that two millennials from Columbia and Rensselaer counties, respectively, Kelly Richards and Jenny Hebert, have built to enhance your social life. Their passion for exploring, eating, and supporting the region in any way possible has given them the knowledge and insight in crafting great social happenings. Visit them and the brand at UpstateSocialNY.com, that is UpstateSocialNY.com, and on social media at Upstate underscore social underscore. Be the first to know what's happening in the greater capital region, from hotspots in town, places to go, and things to see. Your social life deserves a serious upgrade. Take advantage of their suggestions today. Upstate Social, the destination by residents, for residents. Here we are in weekend winners today. Tough weekend last weekend. Seahawks and Jaguars embarrassed me, and I really do apologize for those awful picks as I went 1-2-1. We're still over 500 at 6-5-1 overall in the short life of this segment, though. Picks are going to be a little early for this weekend, but I don't think the lines will shift too much in these games. So here we go. First game, Army-Navy, Saturday. Over under 40.5. I'm going to take the over in this game. It's a low number considering the totals of these teams over the course of the season. Army scores 30 a game and gives up 22, while Navy scores 39 and gives up 24. Both those averages are well over 40.5, no matter how you decide to decipher it. If you take each of these teams the last five games, only Army has had a game where the combined score was under 53 points. This is a glaringly low line, and I would be absolutely shocked if this is not an offensive battle. It should easily go well over the 40.5. I expect it to be in the 50s, so I will take the over 40.5 in the Army-Navy game. Second game, Tennessee Titans, minus 3, minus 110. Tennessee's rolling right now. Houston's coming off a horrible loss to Denver at home in a game they were down 38-3. I make the argument Ryan Tannehill is on the best run of any Tennessee Titans QB in their history right now. Derrick Henry is the best running back in the NFL over the last season and a half, and nobody even realizes that he has been absolutely unstoppable. Tennessee's ready to take this division by the haunches and control their own destiny. I think Tennessee wins, and they cover 34-28. Next pick is the Chicago Bears, plus 5, minus 110 at Green Bay. Chicago's coming off arguably their best win of the year on Thursday night against the Cowboys. Their only other win of note was at home against the Vikings back in Week 4, but they have won 4 of 5, and the Packers beat the Bears on opening night. I don't know if the Bears win this game. The Packers have flirted with danger in a lot of their wins this year, and they win a lot of the time with finesse. They're not necessarily really pounding teams the way that they should. They're always right around the spread number outside of blowout wins against the Raiders and the Giants. All their other wins have been by 10 points or less. I think the Bears' defense has found something here, as has Trubisky. He's been really good over the last couple of weeks. 
We've seen over the years when two division teams are both relatively competitive, it's very tough to beat them twice in the same season in both regular season matchups. I think Green Bay does do that. I think they do win the game, but I think Chicago is in the game the whole way, and it's close till the end. So Green Bay wins, but the Bears cover 27-23. Next pick I have for you is the Dallas Cowboys, even at minus 110. This is a tough pick here, this pick'em game, but I always try and stick to one of my biggest theories in betting. I never judge a team based on their standalone games from the previous week. Everyone gets a little too high on the teams that win big standalone primetime games and teams get down. I think this is a classic wise guy play as everyone is selling the Cowboys stock and selling it quickly. At the same token, they're buying the Rams stock because they've been good the last couple of weeks. Something has to give with this Dallas team. Facing an L.A. team that has played great offense the last couple weeks, but I I think this is just a simple bet against the trends. It's more of a gut feeling than anything else. Dallas desperately needs to win. I think they find a way to do it. I think they win a close one at home, 24-23. Last pick I have is the Buffalo Bills, plus 2, minus 110 at Pittsburgh on Sunday Night Football. I don't really understand how the Steelers keep winning games, but I'm going to go against them here because I think Buffalo is the better team and I get points with them. This is another game where I will probably bet it outright. Usually when the spread is less than 3, I just try and pick the winner. I would much rather get plus 125 odds than minus 110 odds on a pick, and I get no satisfaction from a plus 2 pick from a team that loses by 1. But anyway, if Buffalo had beaten Baltimore last week, they would be favored in this game. They're a well-coached team. This is the first time we will see them in prime time on Sunday night in a while a game that was flexed in no less. I just think this whole Duck Hodges thing will slow down facing a real good defense that has proven it can win games away from Orchard Park. As good as a job as Tomlin has done this year, sooner or later this whole lack of offense is going to catch up with them. I think this Bills team can hold them to 10, 15 points at the most, and I think they're going to go in there on Sunday night and win the game. Bills win 20-17. to 17. So you heard it here first, those are the picks to get some cash in your pockets this weekend. Never forget, bet like a winner, and always remember to bet responsibly. Into call of the day we go now, so it's going to be difficult to top last week's flying Marc-Andre Fleury call. I'm sticking to the golf theme of this episode, the big Swede Henrik Stenson, the winner of the Hero World Challenge. Stuffs one on the 15th from 259 yards for a tap-in eagle and root to his victory. So here's the original call from the broadcast. Told us last night he found a little something in a session earlier on a Sunday at the DP World Tour Championship from his coach, longtime instructor Pete Cowan, and he said he's been leaning on that. The only thing he doesn't want to do here is go long. What a beautiful shot for Henrik Stenson. Oh my goodness. Could it? Henrik Stenson's got a tap-in eagle. That was from the Golf Channel's coverage of the Hero World Challenge. Again, this is a different kind of call. Golf is not quite the scream, yell call that you get, so... Gave it my best shot. Here's my rendition of Henrik Stenson's beauty on the par 515. Stenson steps up. Looks like he has some sort of hybrid in his hand. 259 to the hole. Here on the 15th, this is his second. Ball goes up. He's got such a high ball flight. It's on a really good line. He steps back from it. It looks like he likes it. Lands just on the front edge and hops up and oh wow, look at this thing. It's rolling, rolling, rolling. Looks like it's got a chance to go in and it settles right next to the hole inside a foot and he's got a tap in eagle to extend his lead. 
first ever golf call in this segment. Not as exciting as some other sports, like I said, but it depends on where you sit, I suppose. So that's going to do it for another call of the day, and we're going to sign off in just a moment. So that's going to wrap up episode 10 of the JG3 Experience Podcast. I want to thank you again for spending part of your day with me as always. My thanks as always also to our sponsors, Anchor and Upstate Social. Don't forget to check out my website, jg3experience.com. That is jg3experience.com. You can keep up to date with everything from me wherever you are on the site. I'm hard at work on content across the novel world, across the podcast world, across the children's book world, across the audiobook world. So make sure you keep an eye on the site from everything from me as you can find everything that you need from me all in one place on there. Signing off today, once again, I am Joe Gill, where I am taking on the world one unfavorable taken opinion at a time. And until next time, don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy.